What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. in a very materialistic culture that definitely promotes uh, discontentment. Uh, pretty much every advertisement that you see that we're bombarded with on a daily basis is, you know, the goal is to make you discontent because if you're content, uh, if you're satisfied with what you have, if you're satisfied with how you feel, about yourself, then you're most likely not going to buy the newest thing, the newest product, what they're trying to sell. And so, you know, the advertisement is geared to making us discontent and so that we will get what they want. But uh, studies have shown that the majority of Americans uh, are not content, and the group that's the least content are the millennial generation. And so we're kind of raising a generation of people who are not content with what they ha- uh, have. Um, and it leads to a lot of problems. It leads to a lot of sin, envy, uh, jealousy, any other sins, you know, come when we get to that place of discontentment. Benjamin Franklin said this, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. You know, a good example of this is with John Rockefeller, who is widely considered the wealthiest man to ever be an American and one of the wealthiest people ever. And when he was at the height of his wealth, the wealthiest man in the world at the time, uh, one reporter asked him, how much money is enough? And his response was, just a little bit more. I mean, here's a man who had billions and billions of dollars and, you know, well, well how much is enough? Well, just a little bit more. Ultimately, there will never be a point in time. I'll never have enough. I'll never completely be content. You know, if you look and you see people who obtain fame and power and fortune, they're oftentimes the ones who are most discontent because, you know, they thought, oh, that fame or that power or that wealth would fill the void in my life, would would give me something that I thought I was missing, and they find, well, that's not it. That wealth didn't fill it, that fame didn't fill it, that power didn't fill it, you know, that job didn't fill it, and they're actually more discontent and more miserable because they've gained this, thinking it's going to provide something that it doesn't, and we know as believers, only in Christ will they truly find what they're looking for. But the reason I bring this up about discontentment is because we now come to Genesis chapter 30, and really the heart of this chapter is discontentment between two women, Rachel and Leah. Both these women are in a very difficult situation as we started uh, seeing last chapter because they're in a marriage that is quite weird and twisted. And, you know, um, as we saw, Jacob totally loved Rachel. He loved her so much he was willing to work seven years for her, and we're told it was but a few days for him because the the love that he had for her. But Laban 
Rachel's dad, when the seven years of service are up, does this horrible, deceptive thing. Instead of giving Rachel, he we agreed to give to Jacob to marry, he brings in Leah, and her face is covered, and it's dark, and you know Jacob doesn't know, and he sleeps with her on his wedding night, thinking it's Rachel, and in the morning he finds out it's not, and we're told some things about the two sisters that Leah was the the ugly one, and Rachel was the attractive one, and so you know. Jacob is not happy at all, and he goes to Laban, and he asks, why did you deceive me? And, and Laban, the great manipulator, says, well, didn't you know? You know, in our culture, well, we can't marry off the secondborn until we marry off the firstborn. And so, you know, go ahead and, you know, fulfill her week and then serve me for seven more years. And guess what? You can have Rachel as well. And so Jacob now has two wives, and there's a big problem in his marriage. He loves one of them, the one that he wanted to marry, the one that he worked 14 years for, and he doesn't love the other, the one he never wanted, the ugly one that was just given to him, but he didn't want her to begin with. And now all three of these people are in quite a horrible scenario and situation. And so Leah, the one who's pretty much the innocent party, she's crying out to God, and God blesses her to help her in this situation. And the way he blesses her is he opens her womb, he enables her to have a child, and she has a son, and she thinks, oh, now surely my husband will love me, and he doesn't. And then God gives her another son, and and the same thing, well, now my husband will love me, he still doesn't love her, and she has another one, and another one, four sons, and all of them thinking, now Jacob's going to love me, and it doesn't bring what she's ultimately desiring, and there's a lot of discontentment in her. And, And so, There's something that Leah doesn't have, and that's the love of her husband. But there's also something that Rachel doesn't have, we're told last chapter. She's barren. She can't have children. As we noted in that culture, that was quite a significant problem that brought a lot of different feelings uh, you know, worthlessness in that culture. And so we got one wife who's desperate for the love of her husband, the second wife who's desperate for a baby, and both are really struggling with discontentment in the situation that they find themselves in. And they're going to do things that are very sinful. They're going to do things that are very foolish. And really within this chapter, I want us to see the problems that come when we live a life that's discontent. When we're not willing to be content with what God has given us, content where we're at, it brings many issues and usually it leads to other sins as we'll see with envy and jealousy. And so I want us to have a warning here from the lives of Rachel and Leah. But at the end, I want to share an encouragement from the word about contentment and why we should do it and how we can do it because it's so important for us. So Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 1, says this. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So remember, Rachel's the beautiful wife. She's the loved wife. She has the husband who loves her. She has the beauty. She's the wife that Jacob served 14 years for. Leah is the unattractive wife and the one that's not loved by her husband. And she's the one that ultimately Jacob got deceived into marrying. Now, last chapter, we're told that Leah desperately wanted what Rachel had, which is the love of Jacob. I'm sure that probably she also wanted what Rachel had was the beauty of Rachel. But now we see that Rachel also 
is wanting something that Leah has. She wants the children. Leah's got the kids that Rachel doesn't have, and Rachel's got the love of the husband that Leah doesn't have, and they're both wanting what the other person has, and they're discontent with what they do have. At this point in time, I doubt that Rachel maybe ever envied anything from Leah. I mean, here's the sister, she's not attractive, and, and now I got the, the man who loves me. I mean, this might be the first time where she's like, oh, here, she has something that I want. She's having children, I'm not. And, and we're told that Rachel becomes envious of her sister. And this is something that's so common. Discontentment, the next thing that often comes when we're discontent is envy. Just wanting what someone else has and, and jealousy, it brings us to that place because we're not satisfied where we're at. We're not satisfied with what we have. And so we start envying what other people have, wondering why we don't have that as well. And it often leads us to do very sinful and foolish things. And we see this with Rachel. Notice the first thing that she does. She's, she's envying her sister, the fact that her sister now has produced four sons for Jacob. She wants children. She can't have any children. She's barren. And notice how she responds. She gives this irrational, impossible demand for her husband. She says, Jacob, give me children or else I will die. Now, something we know very clearly, Jacob is not the problem here. Why do we know that? Well, because Jacob's been sleeping with Leah and he's had four kids. So he obviously has everything working. He's capable of having children. He's proved it with Leah. So the issue lies with Rachel. He's not the problem. She's the problem. But he's also not God. Hey, make it so that I can have kids. Well, how am I supposed to do that? I know that everything with me is working, you know, but you're not getting pregnant. What do you want me to do? And I think it's so sad that she comes to this place with, you know what, if you don't give me children, then ultimately this life's not worth living. I'll die. This discontentment has brought her to this place of, you know, I just can't live anymore unless I have kids. Here's a woman who has beauty, a woman who has a husband who deeply loves her, something that Leah was desperate for. But she's not content with what she has. She's not content with her beauty. She's not content with her husband. No, I need to have this baby like my sister is producing. And she gets envious and she demands of her husband something irrational, something impossible. And as she does this, Jacob responds, as often husbands do when something is demanded of them that is irrational, uh, something that is impossible for them to do, and, you know, you better do this for me. He gets angry. And he's like, well, what do you mean I got to do this for you? Am I God? You know, how am I going to do this for you? And, you know, so he in anger responds to her, you know, demand that was just an impossibility for him. And obviously that didn't make the situation better. It just made it worse. But, you know, he's basically saying, hey, it's not my fault you don't have kids. I'm not the one who's withheld, you know, the fruit of your womb. This is something that you take up with God. Well, what Jacob says is true. Yes, he's not God. God's the one that she needs to come to. But he says something that's true, but he doesn't say it in love. And this is a problem that we see within their relationship where, you know, oftentimes as husbands, especially when there's, you know, demands of us that might, we, we see as irrational, instead of, we, we speak the truth sometimes. Jacob's saying something that's true, but it's not connected with love. And the Bible tells us very clearly we should speak the truth 
in love. Uh, and that's very important within a marriage. And so Rachel needed the love of Jacob. She needed empathy. She needed someone to understand how she was feeling, what she was going through. And I wonder if Jacob would have responded that way right now, if that could have helped the situation that's coming. Because Rachel's going to go to some big extremes in the rest of this chapter. And maybe if her husband would have loved her and understood her and empathized with her, it would have helped her not take these next steps because she knew at least there's somebody here encouraging me. And if he would have said, you know, you just need to trust God. Let's pray together. But he didn't do any of that. He just got angry at her and yelled at her. And that didn't help the situation in any way. So Rachel blames her husband because of her discontentment and envy. And I think this is interesting because as Christians, we often will blame, and the one that's usually the, the source of our blame when we're discontent is God. You know, and, and we realize, you know, like Rachel didn't, hey, God, you're the one. You know, I mean, why aren't you doing it? And so we'll say, you know, God, why didn't you make me more like them? Or, or God, why didn't you bless me with the thing that you blessed them with? Or, or God, why didn't you give me that ability or that a talent that you gave to them? Or well, why didn't you give me that position at work or that position in the church like you gave to that other person? Or, you know, God, why is it they have this thing and I don't? God, bless me like you do to them, or else I'll die, or else my life's not worth living. Does that sound familiar? Is that something that you've ever felt, ever thought, ever kind of thrown out at God? I know many of those things have been in my life as a Christian, and I look to God, and, and it's because of discontentment and wondering, why are you blessing these other people and not me in the same way? And kind of throwing that out, and God had to just teach me many lessons in contentment, to be happy, to be satisfied with where you're at, with what God has given to you, the way he's made you, the gifts he's given you, the place he has you in in the present time. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 through gives us a good challenge with contentment. It says, now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with this we shall be content. Most of us, what we desire from this world and as the advertisements of the world keep trying to get us to take their things and buy their things and, and get all that, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to take any of that with us. You know, it's just for this life and this life alone. And, you know, it's a lot of times stuff that we don't even need. It's just stuff we want. And, you know, God says, I will provide for your needs. Don't you worry. I'll take care of your needs. Our problem is not the needs. It's the wants. And oftentimes we convince ourselves that what we want is what we need. Oh, Lord, why aren't you providing this? I need this. Well, no, you don't need it. Uh, I'll take care of your needs. You just want it. Uh, and that want is causing you to be discontent, and you just need to be content with where I have you right now. Well, Rachel's discontentment first leads her to demand her husband to fix her problem. And Jacob can't do that because he's not God. He can't open up her womb. Only God can meet Rachel's need. But notice she's not looking to God. She's looking to her husband. He can't do it. So fine, if he can't do it, then I will take care of this myself. Notice what she does in verses 3 through 8. So she said, here's my maid Bilhah. Go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. And she gave him Bilhah her maid as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. 
And Rachel uh, made Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So Rachel needs to be content. She needs to look to the Lord. She needs to trust in God for this desire that she has to have children and just be content with where she's at presently with a loving husband and um, you know the beauty that God has given her. But she's not content with that. She wants what she wants, and she's going to do whatever she needs to do in order to get it. And notice what she does. All right, you can't do it for me, husband. I've asked you to help. You're no help. I'll do it myself. Here's my plan. Take my maid, Bilhah, and go into her. You sleep with her, you have a baby with her, and then I will take that baby. And that was in that culture, as we looked at with Abraham and Sarah, an accepted thing. You could uh, have your husband you know, sleep with a maid, and, and ultimately it would be seen as your child. And so you know, she's asking Jacob to do what Sarah asked Abraham to do. Go and sleep with the maid and have a child with the maid and that child will be mine. And now I feel like if you do that, then the need that I have will be met. Uh, and so Rachel is trying in her own fleshly efforts to produce what she thinks is going to make her happy. Oh, I'm so desperate for a baby. If, if, this, if you do this for me, husband, then you know what? This will, this will meet my need. I'll be content. So Jacob does it. He sleeps with Bilhah. She conceives and has a son. And Rachel names the baby Dan, which means judge. And she says, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Now, I think this is interesting here. Rachel gives credit to God for this, but she shouldn't give credit to God for this because God didn't do this. This is her fleshly effort. This is her doing this on her own. We're going to see in verse 22 what God does, and God is going to move in her life, and God's going to bless her. But right now, this is her stuff, her doing, and she manipulates this. She comes up with this plan. She gets her husband to sleep with the maid. They have a kid, and now she's like, oh, look. God has done this for me. Look at how God has provided this. And I think, sadly, sometimes that's us. You know, we're wanting something to happen and, you know, it's not happening the way we want or we desire something. And so in our own fleshly efforts, we make it happen. And then we say, oh, look what God did in my life. Or, oh, look what God blessed me with. And God's like, I didn't do that. I don't want my fingerprints on that at all. That's your sinful flesh. You know, I don't want to be associated with Jacob having slept with the maid in order to produce a child. That's not me. That's not what I did. And so she's associating God with this, but God wouldn't want that. That wasn't him who did this. She did this on her own. But she thinks, wow, this worked. Great. They had a baby. It's now my baby. I got a son. Let's do it again. And so they do it again. And Jacob sleeps with Bilhah. They have another baby. And this time Rachel names this baby Naphtali, which means wrestling. And, and she says, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed, I have prevailed. You know, when you look at the names of last chapter that Leah gave to her sons, and now in this chapter, the names that Rachel gives to hers, it's just so sad when you look at the names. They're all connected with their discontentment. Leah's names all focused on the fact that she was desperate for the love of a man that wasn't giving it to her, her husband. And now Rachel's names are all focused on, oh, finally I'm having children to defeat my sister in this baby competition that we have. I mean, notice she doesn't even hold back. She's making it real clear that, hey, I'm naming my my child wrestle because I'm wrestling with my sister and I'm going to win this 
battle that we're having. Uh, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she thinks she's actually winning this. Um, and, and it's just so sad. She's not even trying to hide this reality that, you know, I have this baby competition going on with Leia, and I'm going to win. Don't you think that I'm going to lose this? Uh, and, you know, she thinks that this is going to bring the contentment in her life. Well, Rachel's not the only one who struggles with discontentment. Her sister does as well. Her sister watches. She sees, oh, Jacob slept with your maid and had two children through that. Now let's see how Leah responds in verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now, verse 9 tells us something important about Leah. Notice we're told that she stopped bearing children. Okay, so she had four sons already, and for whatever reason, she's not bearing any children. And so, you know, that's something that I'm sure was worrying her. The one thing that she can do that Rachel can't do is have children. And now Rachel has come up with this scheme of, hey, I'm going to get Jacob to sleep with my maid. And it's already produced two children that now are considered Rachel's sons. And she's like, well, I'm not going to be outdone. I got a maid as well. Two can play this game. And so she gets Jacob and says, here, here's my maid. Just like you slept with Rachel's maid, sleep with my maid. Okay, so he does, and he has a son uh, through the maid of Leah, uh, and she names this baby Gad, uh, which means troop. Uh, and she says, a troop has come, meaning like the reinforcements are here. I mean, you're trying to win this baby competition, Rachel, but guess who has five now to your two? And four of them are actually from me, which you have zero. Uh, and so, you know, but she's not done. You can have two babies through a maid. So can I. So she tells Jacob, hey, sleep with my maid again. And Jacob does. And he has another son. And Leah names this son Asher, which means happy. And you might think, oh, great, you know, she's finally content, content with where she's at. She now produced six sons for her husband, four from herself, two from the maid. And she feels like, you know what, I'm content. But notice why she's happy, not because she's content at all. She says, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. The reason she is happy is not because she has another son, but because of the status this child's going to bring her. Oh, these women are going to call me blessed. That's what I want. I want the, the status of it, not the fact that I, I have these children that are a blessing from the Lord. No, not that. The status that comes with it. So Rachel's plan to have children through her maid, it backfires. She's thinking, all right, fine. Leah's able to have children. I'm barren. I'll have children through my maid. That is my plan. It's going to work so great. And I have two of them. And I think, man, I'm wrestling with my sister and I'm prevailing. Uh-oh. Sister does the same thing. So now I'm back to square one. She's got two through a maid. I got two through a maid. But when it comes to us producing children ourselves, she's still four and I'm still zero. And so this plan has kind of backfired on her. Now, through all of this, I sometimes wonder how Jacob is feeling. He's either really happy that he's the love interest of four women, 
or this is a miserable experience for him, or maybe it's a little of both. Maybe there's part of him that's you know happy that he's the love interest and they're all fighting to sleep with him, but the, the problems that come with it are so severe that it's not worth it. But you know he's kind of just pulled to and fro uh, in this unfortunate marriage that he was deceived into having multiple wives. Uh, and so now we're seeing that the baby competition is not over. Rachel's not done. Her discontentment is not done. She's tried and she's going to try something new. She's got more foolish things up her sleeves. Notice what verse 14 says. Now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please, Give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore we will lie with you, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he laid with her that night. So Reuben is the oldest son of Leah, the firstborn of Leah, and he's out in the field and we're told that he finds some mandrakes and he brings them back to his mother Leah. Now this is very significant. You might read this and think, this doesn't make any sense. Well, understand what they felt mandrakes could do for them, then it doesn't really make as much sense. But when you understand that, it makes plenty of sense. Here's a picture of a mandrake. Mandrakes during that time were actually referred to as love apples. Uh, they were fruit that grew out of the ground. And as you can see, the part that was visible was actually quite small. It was kind of looked like a, a yellow apple. And it was believed that if you ate that fruit, it would increase your sexual desire. And that's why they were called love apples. But there's another reason they were called love apples. You pull that out of the ground, and you can see also up there the root that kind of looks like carrots. It was believed that if you ate the root, it would make you more fertile. And that's the real key here. Oh, you got the love apples. You got the thing that will make you more fertile. Well, who's the woman who's desperate to be fertile? The one who's barren. And so Rachel sees that Reuben brings these to Leah. Remember, Leah stopped having kids as well. And so she sees that and she wants those mandrakes because actually around there, they didn't grow very frequently. It wasn't some common thing that you could get. Uh, it was very uh, rare. And when they did grow, they were expensive. And so, you know, she probably didn't have access to this and she sees it and she's buying into the superstition that, man, if I eat that, it's going to make me fertile. And so she comes to her sister desperate for the mandrakes, asking to have them. And Leah's response reveals how she feels about Rachel. And maybe we didn't realize how severe it was up to this point, but notice what she says. Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Now, when you read last chapter, you kind of wonder, well, why would Leah blame Rachel for taking away Jacob? If anything, you could say Leah took Jacob from Rachel. I mean, Jacob served for Rachel. He loved Rachel. He wanted to marry Rachel. Leah was deceived, well, the one that, you know, her father used to deceive uh, Jacob. And so, but notice she doesn't blame dad. She blames sister. Hey, I was married to him first and you have taken away my husband. 
Well, now the, you know, the conflict in that relationship, you realize, had to be quite severe. When one wife feels like the other wife has stolen the husband away, obviously some feelings of resentment and all sorts of things are going to be with her. And this is another reason that points to the wisdom of God as we looked at the beginning of Genesis where God says one man should marry one woman. Not one man should marry multiple women or one woman should marry multiple men. God's perfect design was one man, one woman. And we're seeing the when you add more, the problems that come to it. So Leah doesn't want to give Rachel the mandrake. She doesn't want to help her at all. She has bitterness towards her sister. So Rachel's like, fine, I'll give you some incentive. What's the price going to be? I know what you want. Here it is. You give me the mandrakes and I will let you sleep with Jacob. Now, it seems that Jacob, every night, comes home. His bedroom is with Rachel. That's the woman he loves. That's the woman he wanted to marry. And most likely, Leah's sleeping somewhere else. And so Rachel's like, hey, you know what? Here's the deal. Give me the mandrakes, and tonight, when Rachel, when Jacob gets out of the field, you can sleep with him. He can be with you. Uh, and, you know, notice the discontentment with not having her own child She comes up with a new fleshly plan. The first plan was, hey, you know what? I'm going to demand of my husband. That didn't work. Okay, so I'm going to have my husband sleep with the maid. That doesn't work. I'm just going to sell my husband to my sister. Ultimately, you know, here, give me the mandrakes and you can have my husband. And, you know, this is so sad. And and she's feeling like, you know, if I get these, it'll make me fertile. It'll give me children. Leah agrees. She thinks, okay, yeah, it's worth it for me. If Jacob's going to sleep with me through this, then here, you can have him. And so notice Jacob comes in from the field. He doesn't have a clue what's going on. Leah comes running up to him and she says, you must come into me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. I've paid for you to come and sleep with me. And so now you have to. And he does. And that's where we're left with at that verse. So Rachel is struggling with something that we saw Sarah struggling with as well. She's trying everything in her own flesh to get something that only God can give. Rachel's not content with a loving husband. She's not content with you know uh, the, the beauty that she has. She wants babies, and she demands her husband to give it to her, which he can't. She tries in her own flesh to get it through the maid. It doesn't work. She tries now with the love apples. She should just be content. She should just trust in the Lord. This new plan, the love apple, just like the last plan, unfortunately, is going to backfire on her as well. Notice what happens in verse 17. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. After that, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So Rachel's plan is, you know what, here, get me the mandrakes. It makes you fertile. I'll be fertile. I'll be able to have a child. And this is all going to work out for me. But the cost of getting those mandrakes is to let sister sleep with Jacob. But she's willing to pay that cost, thinking, that's okay. I'm going to have a baby through this. Well, the worst possible scenario happens. Her sister sleeps with Jacob and gets pregnant from it and now has another child. Now, remember, she stopped having children for whatever reason. And now, through this work of Rachel and doing this, now it's like, oh, she's pregnant again. And 
Leah names this child Issachar, which means reward. And she says, oh, you know, God has ultimately given me my wages because given my maid to my um, husband, which once again, giving God credit for something he didn't want. But she thinks this is a reward from the Lord. And now that Leah has shown that she can still conceive, Jacob sleeps with her again, and she has another son, and she names him Zebulun, which means dwelling. She says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. Surely after bearing him six sons, He'll love me. He'll dwell with me. He'll have this relationship with me that I'm so desperate to have with him. She's still hoping for that. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen. Well, Jacob and Leah sleep together again. This time she produces a daughter. And we're told her name is Dinah. She doesn't say anything about Dinah, but the word means vindicated. So Leah's... Now not going to have any more children, but she has produced six sons on her own, two through her maid, and one daughter. So eight sons, one daughter, and she's thinking, surely, especially in that culture where producing sons was so valued, surely my husband's going to love me, but it doesn't. Jacob hasn't born, or Rachel hasn't born Jacob any sons. She's got two through the maid, and that's it. So right now Jacob has ten sons. Four of them are through maids, six of them are through Leah, and he's got one daughter through Leah as well. But he's about to get more. God's going to move in a way that if Rachel would have just waited, she would have had to cause all these problems. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel in her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Finally, Rachel has a son from her own body. But notice it wasn't because of her fleshly schemes. Demanding it of her husband didn't help at all. Giving her husband to her maid didn't make it happen. Eating the love apples didn't make it work. The only way that she was able to have children was ultimately because God opened her womb. He was the one that she needed to come to. He was the one that she needed to wait on. And in the process, if she just would have been content with where she was at and what God had blessed her already with, then all this other junk didn't have to happen. And it's just a sad reality of what takes place. But even more sad here is how she responds to it. But before we get to that, I just want to say this is a reminder for us of discontentment and what it brings us. When we get to that place where it's just like, you know what, uh, I'm not content at all with where I'm at, with where I look, with where I'm doing, with what God has me. You know, it usually never, when we do our fleshly schemes, it doesn't produce what we think it will. We just need to trust the Lord. We need to trust Him in the process. Well, Rachel names her son Joseph, which means Jehovah has added. And you would think, just like with Leah when she says, I'm now happy, you would think, well, now Rachel's content. I mean, she's finally produced a child from her own body. You know, I mean, she's got the loving husband. She's got the beauty. She now has her own child. Surely now this woman is going to be content. This is now going to fulfill the, the thing that she wanted. But notice what she says. The Lord shall add to me another son. 
Oh, it's great that I got Joseph, but I don't want to stop now. Come on, Lord, let's keep this going. You know, you've given me one son, let's make it two and three and four. And, you know, she's not content with what God has given her. Even though this wonderful blessing, a barren woman opened her womb, she has a child, and yet, oh, I'm just focused on the next one, not on the present blessing of this boy. Discontentment was destroying Rachel and Leah's life. It led to envy, jealousy, selfishness, a lot of foolish and sinful scheming. And we need to let that be a warning of what it can do to us. And I want to finish tonight with a challenge from Philippians 4 where Paul encouraged us to be content. Here's an example of discontentment and the problems it brings to your life. Paul reveals why we should be content and what we should be content in, but most importantly, how is it possible? Because we struggle with that, especially in our culture of materialism. It's hard oftentimes to be content and just to be satisfied with where God has us and how we look and what we've been ability-wise and our role and position and all these things, we can struggle with it. And so how do we do it, which is the ultimate thing I want us to end with tonight so that we can put this into practice. But Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 are some great verses dealing with contentment. And 13 is one that we know very well, but maybe you don't understand its context, which we will tonight as we see this. It says this, not that I speak in regard to need, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer needs. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The thing I really want you to note here, first of all, as we see what Paul shares, is he says he has learned in whatever state he's in to be Content. And I think it's important for us to realize contentment is not natural for us. Our natural inclination is selfish. You know, we are selfish beings that, you know, we don't like to be content. We want more. We want this. We don't like what we have. We, the grass is always greener on the other side. That's what's natural for us. And so contentment is not something that is going to be natural to our flesh. And so we have to start with that reality. And then Paul shares with us something important. Contentment is something he learned. It's something that we have to learn as well. It's not a natural thing. We learn to do. We learn about. We learn to put into practice. Paul was a man who had experienced what both sides of the social ladder were like. He was a man who knew what it was like to be well off in a, you know, prestigious position. He was a Pharisee. You know, he was a well-respected man and most likely while he was in that role, you know, wealthy. And so he understand what it was like to be someone on, on that social side of things. But he also understood what it was like to be at the complete opposite of that. And I think the best description is when Paul shares some of the things that he went through in his life. And you think, well, here is where he was before Christ. He's this Pharisee. He's well-respected. He's got a family. He's got money. He's got what so many people would want and desire. And he's like, I I learned to be content when I had all this stuff. You're like, well, yeah, that's not very hard. But he also says, I learned to be content when I didn't have any of it. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28 shares with us some of 
Paul's life. And I want you to put yourself in his position going through this and think, could I be content here? From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in wearies and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastingness often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul went through some horrific things in following God. And, you know, just take one of those things from that list and say, you know what? I could be content in being prisoned, or I could be content in being beaten, or I can be, most of us probably say, no, I couldn't be content in that situation. And so Paul's not just someone saying, hey, you need to be content as he's living this rosy life where everything's good and he's this great position, he's well respected, he's got all this money. Speaking from that place of like, you need to be content. You say, well, yeah, you don't know what it's like to suffer, Paul. You don't know what it's like to have nothing. You don't know what it's like to be in that situation. So who are you to talk? Well, actually, he is the best person because he's been on both sides. And he said, you know what? I learned something in my relationship with the Lord, how to be content both when I had plenty and when I had nothing. Oh, when my clothes were wonderful and I was naked. Oh, when I had such, you know, position of respect and when people hated me so much they tried to kill me. I've learned to be content in both of those extremes. But it's hard for us. It's hard for us in this culture. That's telling us, you know what, don't be content with the way you look. Don't be content with your job. Don't be content with your house. Don't be content with your car. Don't be content with your relationships. You need more and more. You need the newest and the best. Don't be content. Paul's saying, you know what, you need to learn to be content. Wherever God has placed you, whatever He has given you, whatever situation you are in, learn to be content. You know, many people, instead of being content and seeing what God wants to do in that situation, they're always looking for the new situation. Lord, just get me out of this. I I don't want to be here. I don't want to learn what you have to teach me here. I don't want to grow here. I just want to be somewhere else because the grass is greener on the other side. But you know, the real question is, how do we do it? I mean, how does a guy like Paul make the statement that in the midst of all that difficulty and that pain and all that beating and imprisonment and hardship that he could truly say, I learned to be content in that? Well, it's that verse that we have memorized. It's that verse that we pull out of the context of this and use it for every stage of life when the reality is Paul was speaking this verse specifically about contentment and it's verse 13 when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which is so important to realize because you think, how can I be content in the midst of this suffering? How can I be content when I feel like I don't have this or this that I want? Or or whatever the circumstance or whatever the situation, we think, how can I do this? How can I learn to be content in every area of life? Paul says, well, the answer is, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You you think you can't do it? Well, don't listen to the culture because they're definitely not going to tell you you can do it. And oftentimes, even some other believers won't tell you you can do it. But Paul wants us to know the Word of God says, yes, you can. Because we can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens us. He can give us what we need to be content in this life, especially in this culture. You know, it's one of the things that always stands out when you go to a third world country, as we went to the mission trip in Uganda last year, and you see these kids living on dirt floors in dirt huts with pretty much nothing, no toys to play with. You know, they basically are running around in rags. They got no shoes on and they got a smile ear to ear. You come back here and the kid who doesn't have the brand new iPhone is shouting and screaming and swearing at his parents because he's so upset that he doesn't have it. And you see this difference of like, how in the world is this kid with nothing content and this kid with so much not? And it's just kind of this sad reality of our culture, it's a difficult place to be content. We're just bombarded with all this lies trying to keep us in a place where we're not. Warren Wearsby said this about contentment. Contentment is never the result of multiplying riches, increasing pleasure, or gaining fame. All these only entice discontent. For when one obtains them, he finds he still is not satisfied. Contentment does not depend upon things on the outside, but results from conditions on the inside. Paul had suffered more for the sake of Christ than probably anyone else, yet this is the man who says, I am content. You know, something I love that Warren Wearsby says here is contentment does not depend upon things on the outside, but results from conditions on the inside. And we so often buy into the lie that if things from the outside, these possessions, these things that I want, if I could just get them in my life, I'd be content. But it's never the case. Oh, if I just get the brand new this or the this and we get it, and we are happy for a little bit, but then the discontentment comes again. Oh, I need the newest one, and I need this, and I need that. And so if we're trying to fill contentment from the outside in, it doesn't work. Or in Wearsby saying, no, 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 it's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. Something within you, your perspective, your heart has to change, or nothing that you gain, power, fame, wealth, none of it is going to make you content. You're always going to be discontent if you're seeking contentment from the outside in. You have to be changed inwardly, and your attitude and your thoughts and your heart towards these things have to change in order for contentment to truly happen. And it's something that God's got to do, and it's possible. That's the encouragement of what Paul shared there in verse 13 and the encouragement I want to leave you with because I know we all struggle with contentment, but the reality is it's possible to be content in every area of life. Why? Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He can give us what we need. He can change our heart. He can change our perspective. He can even change our desires. But as he works inwardly in us, changes those things. We start to see possessions and wealth and power and jobs and all these things that we used to think, oh, if I just had that and I'm pursuing that, that it, it, we see it differently. We start to see the kingdom as the important thing, reaching people for God as the important thing, and the willingness to be suffering in the midst of it because of what God's doing in our life. So contentment it's very important because as we see in this chapter, discontentment brings all sorts of sin and problems into our life. And I'm sure we could go around the room tonight and we could all testify and give examples of how our discontentment brought us to places of envy and jealousy, which brought us to more sin, which brought problems into our life. I'm sure we're all aware of this reality. It's not good for us 
But like many sins, we still do it, even though it's not good for us. And so we need to realize, stop. But it's also possible to stop because God can give us the ability to do that.